Hello and welcome to Pull to Open. We've really got to practice our <laughs> synchronization on those drums, but we'll get my there. name is Chris Taylor. And I'm Pete Paschal. And we're a couple of guys <laughs> who love Doctor Who. We're... And we're visiting it, the entire TV series, classic and new mm. in random order. Um, yes, that's and... what I forgot to say, isn't it? This, this is the quest to listen to all of Doctor Who and watch all of Doctor Who and listen to no, ourselves no, talking about Doctor Who. We have to watch Who it. If we listened, in... it would be way more. <laughs> Because uh, Big Finish, man, they have been producing stuff for a long time. There's a lot of stuff. That could actually, be our follow-up podcast. If I permit a short indulgence at the outset, I, I've actually been yes. listening to more Big Finishes um, than I ever have before lately because uh, I've discovered a, a good. it's a good time to listen to them when I run, and I'm running uh, a little more regularly now. And uh, I just finished a great episode with uh, Paul McGann. So Paul McGann, uh, oh, obviously great. he only did the one TV movie and a little bit of a mini-sode later for, mm. for the screen. Uh, but he did, did, did 10,000 big finishes. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm doing the stuff with him and Lucy, which was sort of when they really kind of made it into seasons, and it was when New Who had yeah. already sort of started, and um, the stuff gets kind of a little more elaborate. Nick Briggs is very involved, and there was a really cool episode that I just listened to called Human Resources, or Human Resources. As, Human uh, Resources. As they said, but it was it was great. It was a neat little um, play on office culture, where this office is actually operating a giant war robot, and they don't really know it, and destroying things. And then the doctor—that <laughs> sounds really bad. And the doctor stops it, but it turns out they were destroying the Cybermen. So, you know, the doctor yes. has, has has fine experience in in stopping evil robots. Yeah. Um, but I did uh... just the last thing on it, uh, and I, honestly, I should I should probably have prepped a. Actually, you know what? I can do this in post. I can prep a piece of the audio. Um, yeah. But there was an excellent quote um, that sort of encapsulates the Cybermen. And I like it when, you, you know, it's always a delight, obviously, for fans when these classic monsters get, you know, they come back and you, you hope they're treated well. And mm-hmm. I really like it when the show gets them. You know, there's actually a lot of times when they're just come in for a show or for a cameo and, you know, there's a Cyberman in a story, but it's not really a Cyberman story in that it doesn't yeah. sort of show them as their, you know, their cold, logical selves and what their sort of vision of conquest is and why they are what they are and what they sort of, what motivates them and also why it's fundamentally flawed. But this, this audio had that, which uh, I really like. It always comes back down to that, doesn't it? You will survive. What for? I'll answer it myself then. To create, to achieve, you don't. You just oppress others to preserve yourselves. And what have you learned from being the oppressed for a change? No humility, no empathy, nothing. I don't say this lightly, but you deserve to be oppressed. I I love that. I, I yes, and you're right. Build. Let's build the myth more of the classic monsters. Uh, every time they appear, that's that's definitely what what fans crave. Um, but also, I'm I'm glad to hear that recommendation because I would love to listen to more Big Finish, uh, but I don't feel that there is anything providing me with quality control. Mm. Like I've I've tried to look for 
websites on here are the best big finish stories to listen to um but but no one seems to really be on top of that wow so, well uh, if only we worked if, one, if only one of us worked for a website that <laughs> was known for being catering to super fans and uh and uh right right <laughs> general freedom to write about various topics oh wait <laughs> and unfortunately, I, I have discovered that uh, there are a very limited number of hours in the day, and uh, not enough to listen to all the big finishes I would love to listen to. Would require would uh, require a lot of research. Tell you what, maybe Chris, really, yeah. you could work out a guest post sometime after I've gone a little further <laughs> into the big finish universe. That might that might be fun. I'd love to hear more yeah. about it. Well, as as you can tell from from our chatting about anything but this week's story. <laughs> uh, we 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 had uh, we have not a lot of opinions on the the show that the uh, randomizer sent us to. And last what week. Is show is that, so. Chris? What show did the randomizer take us? To? <laughs> so previously on Pull to Open, the randomizer, which is the random thing that sends us to random Doctor Who stories, all two hundred ninety-seven of them in random order, um, we were sent to uh, the escape, the rescue. Sorry. Um, <laughs> the rescue escape no uh, and uh, then the randomizer decided to punish us by sending us even further back into Hartnell history with the uh, seventh ever Doctor Who serial The Sensorites yeah and I think we, we, uh, we came from the rescue we had just done the rescue and it yeah. rewound us to the Sensorites and I feel like we have to revise the age-old expression out of the frying pan into the fire because it's like <laughs> we were rescued and then thrown into the sensorites which is is you know it's it's an apt parallel you're like okay we were we were over here well, we're, we're not we're anything but rescued over here in the sensorites the randomizer obviously decided that it liked uh british people in space mm -hmm. uh it wanted more stories of british people attempting to populate space but failing drastically um and uh and that is definitely what we got with the sensorites um British people in space, some of them very duplicitous and murderous. Indeed. Exactly the same as uh, as the rescue. So, And strangely, yeah. all of them with dad bods. <laughs> oh, well, that's the sensorites themselves. Yeah. That's, that's a whole other discussion. I feel like um, if you could but... open a gym on the sense sphere, it would just totally kill. <laughs> you, would, you would be a millionaire instantly. You know, you know who was fit and trim? The Ood. The Ood, the, right? The Ood were, were very much based on the Sensorites in a lot of ways. You can see the similarities, and they are supposed to be physically in the same star system. Right. So the, I feel like what, whatever the Ood are doing, if it's diet or exercise, it is working for them. Whatever the Sensorites are doing, uh, maybe they just need a better tailor. Do you feel like there's a big sign outside of that solar system that's like, if you're going to name any planetary bodies here, you have to have hyphen sphere at the end of that <laughs> name. So it's like the Ood sphere, the sense sphere, I don't know, the, the, yes. the massage sphere. <laughs> like, <I> mean, if... <laughs> the, the exercise sphere. Yeah. The sensorites never visit. Well, then just, just um, to but... go counter program, I do the exercise cube, right? You make it all, you yeah. make it all square. Uh -huh. And it's uh -huh. like that just, you know, piques the interest. It's like, oh, man. This is something I haven't seen before in this solar system. Right angles. <laughs> they, what? They, they need to go to the sensor, right, the sensor flat abs, not the sensor <laughs> sphere. 
Exactly. <laughs> the sense of six pack. Unless, we're, unless um, it's, you know, we're talking about the butt for the ladies, then, you know, you need to yeah. the spheres. Okay. So that might, bubble butt. might be a little inappropriate. Um, <laughs> might have to do we, some editing We're going to get later. inappropriate. <laughs> but before we get it fully inappropriate, um, Pete, how, how is Pull to Open doing on the socials? We're doing, the socials are going strong. Um, the TikTok universe uh, seems to be a little, little interested. A little has a their interest in classic Doctor Who might not be, might need a little more training. And I think <laughs> after the censorites, they may be ready to never visit it again. But no, oh, we'll we'll see. No, I mean we we did some st- good TikToks for the rescue. Uh, some nice comments. Um, you know they weren't. Uh, maybe it was the black and white. Maybe it was me <laughs> blame myself it's me chris uh well, but they didn't do quite a, they, they, they didn't we didn't have any viral hits but they all did pretty well and i think um the one that probably featured uh coquillion in the first doctor um did decently and i think i think the uh coquillion outfit i don't know there's something about that we said it last week but um that outfit you, is you're right that that is ready that is ready to hit this fashion sphere yeah uh the coquillion <laughs> outfit but you know what? I, I think I think what we should be focusing on here in both of these stories is the magnificent figure who has already gone viral in recent Doctor Who history, which is Ian Chesterton, mm. uh, Mister London, nineteen sixty-five. Oh yes, went viral on Twitch. So I feel like maybe he can go viral on TikTok too, and uh, you know we, we maybe need to pull that bit about him um, adventuring in a tie like Indiana Jones didn't. And of course, this week in the Sense Rights, he's adventuring in a turtleneck. Indeed. And he, 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 Ian features pretty prominently in this one. And mm. he's the action man. He ends up, you know, succumbing to the disease somewhat. Well, wait, we'll get to it. But, um, yeah. he's definitely, he's definitely the man of the hour. Or is it two and a half hours? It felt like more. But, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it was a while. <laughs> well, yeah. well, you, you've had your own, just to remind, uh, listeners for what you, what we discussed at the end of last week, you've had your own, uh, battles with the sensorites before yeah and so so you, you've had a sleep no more-esque battle with the sensorites I, I for whatever reason every time i tried to watch the sensorites as a kid i would fall asleep uh i would be out by episode three and i think i held on <laughs> to the end of episode four once and i just never never got through it so i honestly never knew quite how it ended although i think i woke up once and saw the very end and um, but not really much of like the the last couple of episodes. So this is actually the first time I've actually gotten through it, and I'll say just barely <laughs> <laughs> by the skin of your teeth. Yeah, I, I really had Propping. to power through it toward the end. There, it was like O M G. Like, is there more? Could you show me more <laughs> weird looking guys in jumpsuits who all look the same with no background music, please? Um, could I have more of that? Uh, and, and like five episodes more of that as soon as they, first <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, a journey. I, I was prepared to, uh, after, after what you said last week, I was prepared to, to fall asleep during this myself, uh, because, you know, too, too much sort of boring, pulpy sci-fi from the sixties. Uh, it kind of, you know, it, it doesn't, hasn't aged well, but this was just such a fascinating document. Uh, being a Doctor Who fan, ne- never having visited the the censorsphere uh, censorsphere before, um, 
Yeah. I I just found this and it's such a British relic, right? Mm. I'm I'm always looking for like how this uh what this reveals about British culture in the 60s and oh my goodness, we we have this is a very class conscious story. Mm. <laughs> Let's just say that. Yet, there are, there are many class issues going on here. Yeah, you very much feel like everyone is upper class anyone who's lower class is being played by someone upper class <laughs> <They're> all- <laughs> everyone just kind of sounds the same like even those rebels at the end who are in the sewers are very well spoken you know they're yes. stiff upper lip uh they're completely uh very very civilized and like uh, you're just like these guys are the rebels really like they, they're not really like yeah. edgy in any way um you also have in this episode a Canadian in a major role, by the way, uh, imitating oh. a, a British accent very badly. Is that John? Uh, the guy who played... The guy, no, the guy who played Maitland. Maitland. Think, oh, okay. Was, Interesting. Yeah. John looks very Canadian. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> I think I knew that guy. Is it, is it the white hair and thousand-yard stare? I think it's the thousand-yard um, stare. He looks like every hockey player who's just like just had his bell rung in the, the corner with the, defen- with the defenseman. Yeah, but... Maybe that's kind of, mm. that that maybe that's what he was playing. So when they when they got the actor well, into before, it, it's like someone you've just been in the uh, the corner of the ice and someone's just had your bell rung and you're just crazy, man. <laughs> you just want to like, oh, you don't know where you are. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, before we uh, dive in too much into dissecting mm. the sensorites, uh, putting them on our dissecting table, we should do the regular feature we like to call TLDW. Indeed. Where one of us recaps the show at a rate of 30 seconds per episode. One of us um, who is not me and this week, anyway, yeah, which is great. Is I'm extremely turn. relieved that I do not have to <laughs> summarize the sensorites. Um, yeah, we have... We've not. We don't prepare anything for these segments. Mm-hmm. Uh, in case you're you're dubious of this, when you uh, listen through our episodes and you're like, Are they really, could they really be doing that bad a job of summarizing these stories without a a script in front of them? Uh, yes, we could. <laughs> um, we're, we're not looking at Wikipedia. Nothing. I'm going to close my tabs so I can't even be uh, influenced by those. All right, Pete, you, close you all those stopwatch ready? All those copious notes we made in advance. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. I've got yeah, three minutes notes. on the clock. You've got a full three minutes because this is a six-episoder. So yeah. that sounds like a lot of time. <laughs> we'll I can, see. I can take this one easy. Okay, well, all right, we'll see just how tell it goes. Go. Uh, try, not to, try not to get lost into too many quarters there in the middle. <laughs> all right, are you ready? Yep. Set. Go. Okay, so it's the future, and the the Doctor lands on a spaceship with Ian, Barbara, and Susan, and they all recollect their recent adventures. Uh, given that they only had six adventures so far, uh, that that's pretty easy. So they're they're on this British ship uh, with apparently dead people on it, but they're not actually dead. Uh, that they're just held in thrall by the sensorites, and they're stuck in this sensor sphere because the sensorites' planet is full of this precious mineral and uh, previous seconds. British astronauts visited it and uh, got attracted to the molybdenum 
uh, that, was, that was in the sensor sphere. So uh, the sensor has got these guys stuck because they're assholes. And uh, they, uh, the, the Doctor uh, and Ian and Barbara... And and Susan get to meet the sensorites. Uh, Susan telepathically communicates with with the sensorites. Wants to go down to their planet. Uh, basically, there's some question about whether they're they're good or evil. They go down to the planet. It turns out they they're kind One of minute. good, but they have this sort of. Um, uh, it turns out the sensorites are actually the upper class, and the the name for the upper class, and there are work working classes and different classes that we never actually see. Um, but there's a there's a leader. And there's a city administrator, and the city administrator turns bad, and uh, uh, attacks the uh, deputy leader, and takes his sash because the only way you can tell sensor right spot is via their sashes. Um, and one one of the uh, British people on the ship has gone lunatic through being stuck in the sensor sphere, uh, because they uh, saw in his thoughts that he thought that they were going to be rich because of this uh, steel alloy uh, that's in the planet. So they, they fix him, um, and uh, meanwhile, it turns out people are getting poisoned on this planet uh, by a particular reservoir, and uh, Ian gets poisoned. Um, so the doctor jumps into a lab and has to try a cure. Two minutes. I sh should have mentioned that the sensorites stole the TARDIS lock, which is why nobody can actually leave. Um, uh, and the doctor tries to uh, cut a deal that he will uh, fix the sensorites' disease problem, uh, with a cure if he gets the TARDIS lock back, so that's what they're operating under. Uh, but the city administrator tries to mess everything up, and it turns out that everyone's being poisoned because there's a sort of uh, a uh, bunch of British... Uh, the, the, the British expedition Two from the previous 30. visit ha are down there in the reservoir, and they're poisoning everything with deadly nightshade, uh, but the doctor tricks them into coming out. The sensorites arrest them, um, also, it is proved that the city administrator was trying to mess everything up, so they go back into the TARDIS, and uh, Ian makes a crack about the Doctor's inability to drive the TARDIS anywhere, and uh, the Doctor says, well, screw you, I'm dropping you off. How am I doing? <laughs> How many more seconds do I have? Two. One. <laughs> Done! Boom! Hey! Wow, you had, oh. like, four seconds to spare there. Not bad, wow. my friend. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's a pretty simple plot when it comes down to it. Um, yeah, it's w a weird note to end it on. Where he's like, <laughs> "You jerk, don't make fun of me. I'm getting I'm take, like, I'm gonna take you back wherever. See you later. Yeah. Dropping you the next the next place I I stop." Yeah, that is my main emotional note about the sensorites. Is I'm surprised at how much of an asshole the Hartnell Doctor is throughout it, and that's sort of that's that's a season one thing right the, mm -hmm. the Hartnell Doctor you know until we get to the time of the rescue is is sort of really a jerk yeah it's pretty harsh just sort of yeah he, you know and, and can't accept harsh truths about himself and kind of gaslights Susan in this episode by claiming that they've never had an argument before blaming the sensorites for them suddenly having an argument now because Susan happens to be telepathically attuned to them and thinks that they're basically nice people. Um, but the Doctor is kind of... Uh, is, is, he, is he bigoted against the sensorites? He certainly doesn't want to stop shouting at them, even though he knows that they are sensitive to sound. Yeah, true. Um, it took his lock. <laughs> so yeah, you kind of... they took his lock, which is like... It's it's so funny because th this is the uh, um, 
TARDIS stuck on a spaceship story, right? Yeah. This is the very first time that it's happened. It will happen so many more times in Doctor mm-hmm. Who history. And it's as if the the writer said to himself, well, we need we need a mechanism by which the TARDIS cannot leave. Which I actually appreciate, because I've spent so many Doctor Who episodes thinking uh, a very common thought, why don't they just get back in the TARDIS? Right. And it's like the, the show forgets in later years that that's always an option. Whenever they're in any scrape. Yeah, I mean, to the show's credit, I think they've they've mostly, mostly either dealt with that in with some sort of plot thing. So mm. you know, it would either fall down a cliff, which has happened a bunch of times. Actually, it happened in the last episode, like at the end of the rescue, <laughs> even though that wasn't part of the yep. plot or anything. But um, or it's, well, some it's door more... comes down. <clears throat> well, I... they're suddenly separated from the ship in some way. Th- those can be fun. Um, and you get sort of a, a, a fun twisty plot to sort of not just, you know, solve whatever problem is, but also get back to the TARDIS. That's th- that, that can be fun. I, I actually prefer it when the doctor makes kind of an ideological point or not quite ideological, but a point about like, I don't cut and run, you know, like that's simply mm-hmm. not what I do. Um, and usually it's like, there's lives on the line, which is, is good enough to yep. keep him there. Well, like um, the, the best example of this to me is always parting of the ways because Rose actually brings it up in that episode where she's like, you know, Oh, actually he, she doesn't. The doctor actually suggests it to her. Like she, cause she initially says, why don't we go back in time and just mm. warn everybody or fix things? And he, he's like, you know, well, because <laughs> plots, yep. but then, yeah. then he goes, but, but you know what else we could do? We could just get in the TARDIS and leave. Yep. And she's like, but yeah, you'd never do that. No, but you could ask, you know, it's like, and it was, that, and, that was a good moment. And then, then they, they have a very similar moment at the beginning of the impossible planet slash Satan pit, um, where they just laugh. They laugh the idea off. And that's sort of, yeah, that, that's a bad fourth wall breaking. As far as I'm concerned, I never appreciate that joke. Cause it sort of almost seems to be laughing at fans who always say, why why don't they just go back to the TARDIS? I, I, and they're just like, hey, we never think of going back to the TARDIS. <laughs> I, I, I like the joke. I, I thought it was a little forced in terms of their, their cracking mm. up at it. But back to the sensor rights. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is, well, one, like when this, <laughs> the doctor clearly forgot to switch the indestructibility to on <laughs> before he left uh, the TARDIS that day. Isn't it funny how like, the TARDIS is sometimes indestructible and sometimes not. And yeah. it's very random on any particular episode, writer, producer era, just how resilient it is. Um, cause... I, I, I can picture the, the Daleks watching the sensorites and think and sort of smacking their foreheads with their plungers <laughs> and going, why didn't we think of that? Just take the lockout. Dang. Just take the lock out of the TARDIS. Yeah. That's how you disable the Doctor. They got way better cutting devices than those little compasses the, the sensorites were um, yeah. playing around with. Um, so it's fascinating because the sensorites are sort of, I mean, okay, the Doctor's an asshole in this episode for, for a lot of reasons. Um, but the the bigger asshole, I think, is, is well, the, the sensorites themselves. Yeah. Uh, the first Elder, especially, I guess he's got to take responsibility for this. Because here we are, Pete, in the middle of a global pandemic, and and we we are we have moved heaven and earth. We are getting billions of people vaccinated, literally billions, uh, with mRNA science. Go science! To prevent, yes, all to prevent a a like 
you know, a disease that kills less than 1%, because less than 1% is a huge number mm-hmm. of humans. Indeed. Um, so we're all consciously aware of that. And and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the figure of the disease that is afflicting most of the sensorites, that, or most of the sensorite working class, whatever they're called, uh, that is ignored by the upper class, is, is it's like it kills 20% of them every year? Is that what we're told? Oh, wow. I, I'm going to have to rewind. But it sounded like <laughs> it was pretty serious. And it sounded it did. Yeah. It, it sounded a bit like they picked a number out of the air that sounded serious. Like, <laughs> yes. And, and it was getting more serious. I think that's the figure that we're told that it killed 30 percent mm-hmm. of the city of the census fair last year. And and they're still not doing anything about it, except the censorites drink their own crystal water. They do not drink the regular reservoir water um, and they've not figured out by pure deduction, yeah. that the crystal water is, is what's keeping them safe. It is as if every rich person on planet Earth hoarded coronavirus vaccine and and said that it was just for them, and they, they cannot explain why it's only poor people who are dying of COVID-19. Yeah, you have to think, like, what a, what a flawed society if, <laughs> like, it's, it, you know, it's not even a priority to, like, think about it for, a, like, an hour. <laughs> it's like, well, there's this disease, um, you know, get here, have some, some water, go to, go to bed for a, a day that didn't work. Uh, you're on your own. There, guys. I, I'm stumped. I don't know what this, what, 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 what it could be. Um, yeah. I don't think that anyone watching this, uh, even in the 1960s would, would not associate it with, with the cholera outbreak of mm. a century earlier, you know, when, when, you know, Jon Snow famous, london doctor figured out the cholera uh was being contracted by the water right and wow. and he had to go through this whole ghost map thing many many people have told this story many people have heard this story um tell tell me the know. story i want to hear the story <laughs> <laughs> it's it, john john snow is the guy who proved that cholera was contracted by a via water okay. so they used to think that it was like miasma in the air and uh, he, he was able to prove, using nothing but statistics and science, that it was coming from this one particular... You had a cholera outbreak around this one particular water pump in London. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, when we see the sensorites like, not even giving a crap, not even deducing that their you know, water from one particular reservoir is is poisoned. That's going to remind at least every Londoner watching this of, of what happened with, with cholera. Because that was just such a seminal moment in the Victorian life of Britain. Interesting. We finally figured the shit out of a disease that killed, you know, thousands, if not millions. Yeah, and, the, um, well, the, I, the, and going back to the 20% figure, I kind of feel like like it's such an interesting thing to look back on, like, when... I mean, not that not. I'm not trying to downplay COVID or anything, but like pandemics mm. used to be like even more serious, <laughs> right? They would like oh, try, yeah. like kill a lot of people and cause a lot of misery. And you know, luckily we're in a more modern era. COVID isn't as serious as some previous diseases, as serious as it is. Um, and you kind of like you know we we're dealing with this now, and it's it's a you know a big problem and a big inconvenience, and on top of all the the, the people dying. But wow. Did lots of these these pandemics really used to be like just statistically massive and i think when they yeah. pulled that 20 percent or you know whatever it was but somewhere around there um i think that sounded reasonable you know and and we maybe maybe we, we were further out from a certain amount of like 
massive pandemics that it was still pretty abstract. But now that we know when it even affects less than 1% mm. what it can do to a society. Um, yeah. yeah, I feel like, you know, we're surely at the dawn of a lot of pandemic era entertainment and plots uh, yeah. in stories, whether it's movies and TV that, uh, but it's going to uh, encounter a public that's much more savvy about this stuff. And I, I'll be, I'd be interested to see how that sort of plays out in shows like Doctor Who and, and, you know, TV, literature and, 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 and entertainment that has license to play with this stuff at scale, which is sci-fi. Right. You know? And yeah. We, we need more stories like this that, that, that show the scientific method working, right? Mm -hmm. Even if we, we can debate endlessly about like whether, whether the sensor rights are supposed to be just sort of barbaric medievalists, right. basically, who just don't give a shit about the equivalent of the black death you know just sweeping through their entire society uh which is a little weird given that they also had this lab ready to go <laughs> to give the doctor like just hey we have a shit ton of test tubes we have no idea what to do with them but yeah, yeah go go have a montage sequence in which you deduce that there is poison in one particular area of the water supply uh but it is a wonderful example of the bbc educating you in what to do <laughs> in the event of a water-based pandemic. Yeah. Uh, well, I think... I'll... Here's how you deduce how it works. Yeah, and I think this is... You're kind of touching on, like, why I think this episode really fails because it's like it has some... Like, so many good things, like, so many good elements of what Doctor Who kind of is and, and ended up being there. Like, there's a lot of ingredients, and even though they're sort of simplistic 60s versions of some of this stuff, like the... The whole thing with the cat eyes, which was a bit nonsensical, but clearly thrown in for educational purposes. Oh, cats cats can't quite see in the dark, but they can see better than a human mm. and, and things like that. And that the di mm -hmm. pupil dilation with the, the sensorites, um, you know, there's 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 that. There's some good sort of mystery about the doctor. Um, we talked about the TARDIS not being accessible, and I think other, other episodes have done that well. Um, well, that's the whole point. Other episodes have done all these things better with better <laughs> stories than the sensorites. Sensorites completely but, falls down. And another one I would say is the 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 sensorites themselves. Like we've we've joked about it, but they're they they're kind of half making a point about class systems, but they never quite get there. And we're never yeah. really know are we supposed to like the sensorites or not? You know, like they have the nice elder, and I guess it's a nice society, but it doesn't seem structured well. And they clearly have jerks. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I sort of contrast this particular story because I think that the power dynamic between the chief elder and the uh, city administrator is very similar to the Silurians. Um, and mm -hmm. when there was like a leader who was sort of wise and working with the doctor and uh, a second in command who was, who was more aggressive and angry and wanted to, to defend and protect... Um, mm. um, that really worked in the Silurians, uh, maybe because it was more, uh, well, for a host of reasons, it does not really work here. And it just becomes this sort of plot that seems this, this dramatic irony where you're constantly like, oh, he's the bad guy, you guys. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's literally done only for that reason. Cause you know, I'm not really buying his motivations. I'm not really, it, it all just seemed like not really rooted in anything. 
and um yeah well there, there is an argument to be made that he is uh at least partly uh infected by racism mm. from from the earth people <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> when he suddenly realizes that we all look the same, <laughs> we we all look alike. Uh, mm. You can't tell the difference between us, uh, except through our sashes. Oh yeah, that, I, I guess we are a racist caricature of ourselves. That was so cringy for like all the reasons. Obviously, the, the sort of racist implications, which maybe even at the time weren't weren't quite as as obvious, but also like you're just figuring this out. <laughs> 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 Have you have you noticed how we all look alike? Like, oh my yeah. god! You're, one, you're grown, but he, he, you're also like he, what? It just makes he no does sense. get his racism in first, I believe. He, he he claims that all the humans look alike. Mm. There's there's some line about oh you all look the same to me, and and I think he's saying this to Carol, right? The the woman on the spaceship who's engaged to Crazy John, right? Um, and. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, I, the point is well taken that it sort of it goes. The main problem with the censor rights is that it doesn't make any sense. It goes in the direction of making sense on certain things, and and just doesn't quite go there. But I got to say, in in the defense of the censor rights and its science, its cod science, uh, molybdenum mm -hmm. is absolutely a thing. Oh yeah. And I I challenge you to think of another Doctor Who story that has such a starring role for molybdenum. Oh my. Is, is that a serious challenge? Uh, <laughs> Trying to well, think. I, Where I, was I metal? The, the number is one. I think the number is yeah. one. I think it's the sensorites. I think it uh, is. I I had no idea that molybdenum was a thing. I did not remember my uh, my uh, element, uh, my table of elements. I didn't remember that it's atomic number 42. Hmm. Uh, a silvery white metal. Highly resistant to corrosion. You know... Um, I, I always like to take my coffee with a little molybdenum. Um, <laughs> it it really, uh, you know, just strengthens my whole outlook on the day and, and you know, brings out the flavor uh, a little well, more. You, you you joke by talking about coffee, and yet the the solution that the doctor provides, uh, the the equivalent of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine that, that sorts out the sensorite plague, is caffeine citrate. Mmm. Delicious. <laughs> That's a delicious cure, Doctor. I'll, I'll take mine with my, my, my molybdenum with a twist of lemon. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so it, it sort of starts to feel like this is, uh, this is the episode of Doctor Who that was supposed to teach us chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it certainly didn't teach like us. Like the, the BBC elders planned everything uh, as they did a lot at the start because of course doctor who was intended as a very educational show mm -hmm. that's why you have all the the early historicals um the daleks was only allowed because it was uh, you know supposed to be teaching us about things like uh you know the, the history of war right. and nazism and pacifism and all of that um yeah and probably and, why uh, why the british had to go to war in world war Two and you know facing yeah. annihilation etc um yeah the, you this is definitely like like you we had you identified earlier this is first season doctor who and it's interesting that it's late first season doctor who because i, yeah. I actually quite enjoyed the sort of reflection they they had at the very beginning where they're like oh we've we've been through some times say hey, doctor like, <laughs> the daleks and all that stuff which was kind of like if you think about the time like it's it's a treat right to even have yeah. old episodes referenced because <clears throat> uh, you know you, you there were no vcrs there's obviously no streaming you, you it was one and done. If you missed it, you missed it. And yeah. 
you're kind of on a journey and you know to yeah. have just to have the actors sort of be there and sort of openly acknowledge this journey you're on uh makes it a little less episodic makes it a little more like a universe right off the bat and you really feel it and it's like yeah this is this is it it's and that was the the beginning of that really um, what what I love about that scene is not only that it's got like we're, we're going to recap the entire season as the, as they've never really done again, mm-hmm. Doctor, um, but it also uh, the Doctor has to one up that whole scene by talking about his own experience with Henry the mm. Eighth, who threw a parson's nose at him. Yeah, he um, had to one up the- everyone with his own story. Like, oh yeah, by yeah. the way, I've I've been traveling longer than any of you. Uh, but also that was a nice little surprise for me because you know we know from later doctor who history that the doctor likes to mess with tudor monarchs <laughs> and uh gets seriously mixed up with elizabeth the first in a number of ways uh that's a wonderful you know subplot to to new who but here he is uh mixing it up with henry the eighth in exactly the same sort of way uh with exactly the same result of getting sent to the tower mm. which he wanted to do because the tardis was in the tower um and I think is is that the first time? Is that the first time that we hear the Doctor tell us of a story, uh, an adventure that happened off screen hmm. before we knew him? That's a good question. I don't think so. I think he might yeah. probably. I, I'm trying to think back to like the Aztecs, where there was a yeah. lot of talk about time travel and stuff. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. Fans, but it fans might, let it us might know. be the first example of of the Doctor name dropping. Right. Let's face it, the Doctor is the universe's world, uh, well, universe's world's worst, and the universe's worst name. Oh, he's infamous. He, he's he's unstoppable. Yeah. Um, he he does it, yeah, constantly. And he, the Doctor, also um, lies, by the way. So <laughs> yes, it's it's much more of a thing in New Who, but it's it's like it's it's sort of a wonderful throwback to see Hartnell doing it here. And I wish that had been his role in the episode to just continually name drop. <laughs> uh, instead, he he just sort of adopts this macho posturing uh, where he's gonna he's gonna boss Susan around. Yeah, he's going he's gonna threaten the censorites or not threaten them, but tell them that they're gonna get more than they bargained for. It just there's there's a lot of toxic masculinity that comes out of the darker in the, in the rest of this story. And it's annoying that given we were set up for success with the Henry VIII story. Yeah, and I don't. I wish there had been more clear intent of the story to do what it was doing and maybe have a little commentary about it. Like um, the only time, well, not the only time, but the first time it sort of comes close to this was when the Censorites invade the ship early on and they're, they're for whatever reason, not speaking at all. And they're sort of slowly mm. advancing on Ian and Barbara and Ian picks up the hammer and sort of threatens them back yeah. with it, even though they keep advancing on him. And you're kind of like, are, are you going to do anything? Like, either of you? Like, is anyone going to say anything? Like, and that's also like, why, are, Ian, why aren't you at least talking to these people? And he doesn't say yeah. anything to them. And then it takes Barbara. She says something like, um, do you really have to, like, threaten them? They haven't done anything to you, have they? Like... Uh, which I'm like, yeah, you like s- yeah. settle down. Like I know they, they're supposedly the bad guys, and you've heard a lot, but I mean, let's let's use our let's use our words, maybe. Let's try that. If, if, exactly. If if Ian's approach is sort of sort of sensible mainstream 1963, or reflective of that mindset in any way, then it, it's even more of a wonder that we made it through the Cold War. Mm. 
You know, yeah, it's, it's that sort of uh, we're in the Cuban Missile Crisis here, and Ian is sort of, you know, let me just and and there's a lot of that posturing with the censorites. It's like a, it it's almost a wonder that they don't get called communist at some point, right? Yeah. It's, I, I don't know. I, it's well, just it's just like, it's very us and them. Well, exactly. It's very us and them until it's not, and yeah, you just really feel like. Uh, they're they're on the verge of sometimes making a point and then they either back off from it mm-hmm. or do a complete 180. Um, yeah. And uh, like the chief elder and the sensorites relationship with the doctor, once they sort of beam down, uh, I, you know, you just, you're never quite sure. Are they in trouble or not? <laughs> are these, yeah. should I like these people or not? Like um, it's really, I really wish it tried to make a point. And I, I got to say, one of the weakest parts of the episode, and this is, I have no idea why they did it. Maybe they just ran out of money or maybe the composer was just sick that week, but he, <laughs> there, there's virtually no music in it, you know? And like music is an essential tool for making those dramatic points, you know? And you could, well... you could have <laughs> some more, uh, you could you could play up certain emotions here and there, but it's like like, I'd say it's like, 90% silent, 80% silent. Like there is a lot of silence in this episode. Well, don't forget you got you get that musical cue when uh they they first discover the the uh British inhabitants of the spaceship. And and Ian looks at Maitland and takes his pulse and says, "He's dead." And then we get a musical sting mm. just to remind us that being dead is bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but by contrast, at the end of that episode, I thought there was a rather effective use of silence when they're waiting for the sensorites to appear. Right. And it's all about the anticipation of the sensorites appearing on the screen, which is actually a, a pretty spooky moment when they appear for the first time. And that's the, the first cliffhanger yeah. at the end of episode one. Uh, I kind of like that that silence there. I, I, you know, it sort of reminds you it can be an effective uh, enhancer of fear. So, well, I, if it had been used judiciously like that throughout, I, I wouldn't have a problem with it. But you're right. Well, I basically I would say I, you're dead on. I, I that wasn't bad. I don't think it was intentional. I think they just were like, Listen, <laughs> we're not having music in this episode, so and it came off as spooky. We can only afford we can only afford 15 or, minutes of music. Or uh, the director was like, oh wow, you know this is really effective with no music. You know what? Let's just not have music mm. in the rest of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I, that that was very good, especially with the sensorite sort of being like right outside the the window, mm. which they never really explain or talk about again. Like, I guess the sensorites are fine in a vacuum, which yeah. seems pretty interesting considering like it's it's like their one thing, I guess, other than telepathy, which is they can survive in a vacuum because otherwise <laughs> all you have to do is shout or turn off the yes. lights and so, <laughs> you got them. They're so not- this is like... Uh... It's like the tardigrades. I'm sure you're familiar with the tardigrades oh, who can totally actually survive in space. What are you totally. talking about? Since, since, I mean, they kind of look like big tardigrades. Um, they also look a little bit like my dad. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there. There's there's a lot of um, overcombing. <laughs> to, a lot of overcombing. So they've got like beards. ear. Yes, ear hair patchy becomes beards. beard. Yeah, it's very patchy. Lots of it's super weird. Yeah, <laughs> they they really haven't got the idea of addressing their dad bods appropriately. <laughs> they are in very very tight fitting gear. Yeah. There is nothing left to the imagination. Yeah, uh, in in the sensorite clothing. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the the man who made all these decisions, uh, Peter Newman, mm-hmm. the, the writer of the episode. Uh, 
first of all, you may be surprised to learn that he was inspired by the bit that comes at the end, the uh, previous British space people who were stuck underground as if they were Japanese soldiers who hadn't heard that the war's over. Um, huh. And that's basically what they're doing, right? They're, they're just sort of continuing the war by other means. Um, hmm. And this, this is fascinating because uh, Peter Newman is kind of a tragic figure, but he was famous at this time for a Hammer movie called Yesterday's Enemy. Okay. Uh, which you you may not have heard of, but it was it was not a horror film. Uh, you know, Hammer mostly did horror films, but this was uh, it started as a BBC play, play for the day, and then became a Hammer movie. And it's about uh, the British Army in in Burma during World War Two, and it's sort of it was sort of shocking and controversial at the time because it showed the British Army committing atrocities. Why? Yeah, they 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 shoot they shoot this in you know there's this captain who uh, uh, tells them to shoot this informer in a Burmese village so he can't go back to the Japanese like they they just going around summarily executing people and then the twist in the movie is you know all the Brits get captured and the Japanese start doing the same to them. Uh, oh wow! And it's just yeah, yeah so it's dark. edgy edgy dark stuff. Uh, so clearly, he and, and Peter Newman himself served in, in Burma during the war. So this is clearly, uh, he was a pilot there. So it's clearly sort of based on his own experience. And you can tell that, that that's what he wants to do. But he's once he's created the sense rights, he's almost forgotten about his, you know, uh, his, his British soldiers stuck underground poisoning people. Mm. Um, yeah, that's right. They just kind of seem to come in at the end it's like oh yeah there were yeah. other bad guys kind of talked about and now yeah. here they are and they just seem like the same as the space crew except a little crazier and for some reason they brought deadly nightshade with them I don't yeah. know if they're supposed to have brought it from earth well standard issue to... Chris <laughs> uh, you gotta have some deadly nightshade whenever you go on a deep space voyage I mean who knows why what you is going on I mean this, this is supposed to be I believe it's the 28th century uh, uh, we're, we're told a few things about Earth. One, one is that Big Ben no longer exists. Oh yeah, okay. So this was like I remember because I, I watched this over a series of nights, and I remember <laughs> there was a bit of a dialogue that establishes what century everyone's from, right? What century do you come from? The twenty-first, perhaps. Which <laughs> is the weirdest thing that they don't kind of question the fact that these time travelers have just shown up in their ship. Yeah, this um, is kind of a thing they did a lot, as I recall. I think mm. they even had a little discussion in the rescue. It, that was similar, like, there's all, like, let's establish what century everyone's from, like, yeah. and we're all just casually accepting we're in a, a universe where there's casual time travel, so we're Well, good. I tell you what, the, let, let's dip briefly into the target novelization. Uh, <laughs> let's. You know, of, that's my favorite. We, got, we need a sound <laughs> cue for this. Hey, hold on. <laughs> mission to yeah, it, the sound of an arrow hitting its target, because it's right on target. Ooh. But the target novelization of the Sensorites, written, uh, I believe, in the 80s, 1987, once Doctor Who was off the air, they're like, go back to all these old stories. They're like, let's clean this shit up. And they have <laughs> in the Sensorites uh, novelization a little thing which suggests that they don't actually think that the Doctor and his companions are time travelers. They think they're space travelers. And it's because... Um, in, in subsequent centuries, ships get faster and faster, so they overtake the older ones, right? 
So they think that, oh, you're funny and you're you're dressed funny, so you must be from the 21st century. You must have been from one of the earlier ships. And this is just a thing that happens, that we overtake you guys a lot. Oh, wow. That's kind of clever. That's a little bit almost like, you know, SS Botany Bay full of, you know, genetic enhanced humans from the 20th century. Yep. And, you know, we just found you because now we have warp drive. That's pretty cool. Uh, I like that. I'll also tell you, talk novelization makes your favorite reference to your favorite uh, mysterious ship, the Mary Celeste. <laughs> it's, it may be the most referenced ship <laughs> in, in all of Doctor Who. Yes. Yeah. We that came across it, in case you didn't hear it, we came across it in the Mordron Undead episode where Tegan compares uh, the Mordron ship to the Mary Celeste. I can't wait um, to get to the chase when we can actually <laughs> see it. Actually see what happens. No spoilers. Yeah, and and now the randomizer will make that make that the very last show we ever watch. <laughs> so, I gotta say this is random, but since yeah. we're talking about the British crew and their spaceship, mm. as soon as I saw their their outfits with the sort of rocket ships on them, like they're great, they're great so outfit. great. I want one of those so badly, but <laughs> um, I just thought th- those are blue. Like, <laughs> yeah, those have to be blue. There's no like it's totally black and white. If those aren't blue colored uniforms, like yeah. I, I, I will eat those uniforms. This, um, this totally they're totally the RAF. They're totally wearing mm-hmm. RAF blue uniforms, slightly adapted. Uh, instead of wings, we have little rocket ships on the breast pockets looking very smart. And uh, yeah, def- I mean, this was written by a former RAF pilot. So. You know, um, but but just to go back to the the tragedy of Peter Newman, mm-hmm. he uh, so he was famous for this. He was described as Hammer's Golden Boy because this is actually quite a quite a successful film. Then he writes uh, the sense rights. It's his only Doctor Who credit, and then he gets writer's block. Huh? For the it rest happens. of his life. Oh, well then. Yeah, and speaking he, of diseases. It's so tragic that he, he he can't write anything. You know, his family describe um, going into his room and seeing like screwed up pieces of paper everywhere, uh, and he just can't get anything completed. So he takes a job as a porter, I believe, at the um, the Tate the Tate Gallery in London, um, and uh, supposedly leads a documentary crew around one time, and then in about nineteen seventy five. He falls down some stairs. Oh no! Uh, and, and hits his head, and and dies. And he died. Uh, from, oh man, yeah. that's not a yeah. nice way to go. I'm sad I about know, that. right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I certainly can sympathize with the writer's block. Um, although I got it, it's it's a shame they didn't have blogging back then. I mean, really, mm. like there's kind of like a if you have no deadline and you're trying to write scripts or like he yep. should have been a journalist right like that's what he should have went into journalism for a couple of years to sort of exactly. force that block out of him cuz at some point you just have to publish your story yep and you just you got to you got to have something you got to have some paragraphs and they might be bad but you'll get a second crack tomorrow <laughs> and you'll you'll keep you'll keep going and at some point it'll work itself out and then he yep. should have done that for a year or two and then he could have been better it might... that's too bad might also have helped him kind of trying to figure out what he was trying to say with these stories. Uh, you know, if, if you can hone and develop your critique of, of the British army or the British military and British colonialism, which is sort of feels like what he was beginning to, yeah. uh, you know, and, and the whole class consciousness stuff, you know, um, 
which which comes out in the sense of right, it's like really zero in on that maybe with a little non-fiction writing um then that can that can inform your fiction but yeah yeah it's it's, it's so it's so sort of a fascinating tragic story i think because of that because of its writer and that's why i maybe uh, re- reading that before we came to the end of the sensorites um i i was a little more sympathetic um yeah. in the about the ways in which it didn't work you know well i would have i wouldn't have mind a comeback too right like even though yeah. like obviously i'm not a big fan of this one um you know, you, you. I would love to sort of see him like get back on the horse and like you know write, mm. a, write something else that maybe has that same commentary, but uh, is tighter. Maybe a, <laughs> maybe we start to do another two episodes, uh, mm. Peter. But yeah, it's too bad he never got the chance. Oh, yeah, and it sort of it, it would have been nice for him to get a commission, something like the uh, the guy who writes the sub the subsequent story, um, which is Reign of Terror, mm-hmm. was. Yeah, which uh, they were they were given three choices of like three different historical periods you want to write about. They chose the French Revolution, mm-hmm. uh, the, or the the terror following the French Revolution, and, uh, and that's how you get the Reign of Terror. And that's how you get supposedly being the the Doctor's favorite um, historical era, which makes him even more of an asshole. <laughs> um, I wonder if that still holds. It'll be it would be interesting <laughs> to see Jodie Whittaker. <laughs> come out and start oh, yeah. singing the praises of of the reign of terror brilliant uh, all those executions brilliant brilliant oh this is gonna be yeah. fun <laughs> all the costumes yeah. oh, oh great chris eccleston they're fantastic uh-huh. oh yes well he's dead the aristocrats audios. speaking of the audios yeah he's he's come back uh well welcome back chris um and I, I love that he is so uh open about the fact that he's doing it for the money if you've, you've seen any of the <laughs> I haven't seen his interviews. Uh, I've, I've I've been but saving like, those. Uh, but they all awesome. ask the question of why why did you come back to Doctor Who now? Well, to be honest, I'm an actor. I need to feed my children. Uh, I did this for the money. Oh wow. Uh, okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> uh, and also, he liked the script. Like he felt the script was up to the character. So he still he, he still yeah. has standards. But well, yeah. I mean, I know he also is doing a little bit of the conventions. Um, mm. So I mean, I, I'm glad. I, I like it. Just shows that he can he can mellow out everyone can mellow yeah. out and i'm glad he's sort of part of the family and it's kind of one of those things where i was actually just talking with my wife about this the other day on sort of the special thing about fandoms and doctor who and franchises now in sort of this era that um they're gonna go on without you like they're gonna mm. your the legacy of chris eggleston on doctor who has already been adapted in so many different works there's fan fan fiction real fiction um, right. um, comic book versions, comic books, um, theories, you know, um, uh, the, the universe itself sort of references back to that all the time. Um, you know, like you can be a part of it or not. And, you know, given all the, the wonder and sort of the love that sort of is, goes hand in hand with that, I, I, I've got to think that it would be really hard. You have to be pretty cold to not feel anything mm. to, to, yep. to be a part of that and see your part of that sort of examined and celebrated in, in so many different ways. Like, it's like, why wouldn't you, you know? But, you know, yeah. people are different. But th- this is the thing that, that Tom Baker had to go through, right? He had to he had to run away from, from Doctor mm-hmm. Who for uh, a decade or more before yeah. he came back to and the fandom embraced him with open arms. And now he, he you know, he's a god among the fandom, right? And, yeah. and you see this uh, happen in, in Star Wars as well. You know, a variety of actors uh, kind of, 
with even minor roles, kind of stepped away at first from fandom, and then when they realized how warmly they were being embraced, came back to it. So yeah, partly it's that that sort of geek culture is everything now. You know, yeah. I mean, we could we could go on and we could do a massive podcast series just on this, uh, but yeah. Um, the whole idea of universes and subgenres and and well genres and subgenres and even even micro genres within those um all having their own communities all uh having thriving on in this online sort of world where the geeks have taken over uh not just online culture but culture generally um mm-hmm. y- how could you do you can do anything but surrender right <laughs> like yep. it's no longer uh it's it's it would be ridiculous to sort of ridicule this kind of nerd culture today the way it was in the 70s and 80s like it just yeah. it's it is the culture and it, it's it, this is why the peter newman's story is particularly sad because he you know he, he died before he could see uh what what doctor who had become really uh you know mid 70s they mm. they were still deleting oh yes uh, oh old my episodes God. at that point right and yeah. the sensor rights itself got wiped over and i'm sure that he thought that this this little work he did would would never be seen again. But you know, today he would be fated at conventions as the the seventh the writer of the seventh Doctor Who serial. Yeah, whatever, luckily whatever it explores. was found, Chris. <laughs> no. <laughs> but no, I mean, obviously you want you want you want completeness in the the archive. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, I got to say, he, he, for whatever failings the story has, he gets some mm-hmm. good things right. And there are some really good lines, even from the doctor, yeah. um, as, as much of an asshole as he sort of happens to be, is um, he, he has some, some really quotable lines. Some are very doctorish and some are very like almost doctor who, a uh, little bit breaking fourth wall, but like um, um, very self-referential almost. Yes. And um, but anyway, one of the one of the quotes I really liked was, and this is sort of a a bit of a "Hey kids" moment, but it's like the it says the one purpose in growing old is to accumulate knowledge and wisdom, and mm. to help other people. And I thought, like, oh, oh, okay, I love that. I love that line. Yeah, and, yeah, and line. the the introduction of of wisdom to to the Doctor's character, like that. That's that is what ultimately defines him. He has wisdom, which is more than just intellect right and it's more than just heart it's it's a combination of the two you've got to i mean and the doctor needs to dial up his empathy before he's truly wise but that's mm. sort of the great thing looking back at, at early hartnell is it gives the, the doctor somewhere to grow from you know mm. he he grows out of that pretty quickly and Ian and barbara kind of humanize him somewhat yeah um there was a yeah. great I, i'm gonna go on a tangent here and this is yeah. probably my my we should make this a regular thing in our podcast because I always go into these um, weird uh, comics or audios that really expand on the themes we talk about. But one of them, I love it because I get to I get the recommendations. So yeah, well, one of them in particular that hones in on this very specific thing, which is like why the Doctor is such an asshole in the first adventure in the first season, and then how he comes to very quickly become uh, much more gentle, even as Hartnell. And then become the the doctor we know throughout, right? The the sort of champion of not just the universe, but of like humans in general. Like he, comes, you know, Earth's favorite planet. He obviously has an affinity for it, et cetera, et cetera. And it's called Hunters of the Burning Stone. It's a comic strip mm. from. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually done to celebrate the 50th anniversary in Doctor Who magazine, and it's this huge epic comic that actually 
takes the cavemen from an unearthly child and shows what happened to them. And they end up getting um, uh, enhanced, essentially, by this race of not quite godlike people, but like people with advanced technology. And they they, um, end up coming back to Earth because they've been taken off Earth. And uh, there's... There's a bit where the eleventh Doctor is paired again with Ian and Barbara, and <laughs> there there are so so many great moments where they don't believe he's the Doctor because obviously they've never seen him regenerate, um, mm. and they think he's just this imposter. But then they're they're convinced eventually, and the 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 aliens who have enhanced the cavemen have these metal powers, and they make the Doctor go back to that era and see how he behaved. And what a jerk he was. <laughs> and so, like, he's there standing with Ian looking at their first adventure together. Wow. And he's just, he's shaking his head about how, how ashamed he is on how he behaved. He's just like, look at me. I'm so arrogant and full of myself. Like, I can barely wow. hear you speak. And so then, everything from, from Twice Upon a Time, where Capaldi gets to see what an asshole he was in his first <laughs> incarnation. Well, this in, is, that this case, is kind of... in that case, it was played for laughs, mostly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but this was very much like it actually gives Ian and Barbara a ton of credit because basically like Ian thanks him like, look, you showed us the universe. You showed us what we could be like. I, I, I thank you. And the doctor's like, no, Ian, don't you see? You showed me like I, I, I had never traveled with anyone but my granddaughter before. And mm. I thought for sure you humans would not be able to take the universe and you would just be running, screaming and tearing your hair out. But instead you showed courage and warmth and you ended up inspiring me after you guys left. I, I took others with me, many others, you know, and it was just like, Oh wow. What a great, what a great take. (laughs) I love, I love moments like that. Little bits of dialogue in Doctor Who that can just sort of crystallize something for the entire show. I mean, the, the, old, the all-time great, I think, is the, the Doctor's Wife, where, mm. you know, Idris basically says to the Doctor, look, you think you, you think you stole me? That's cute. I actually stole you. Yeah. And it's like one line that can flip the whole history of Doctor Who on its head, which is kind of what, what that's doing there. Um, you yeah, know, absolutely. Ian and Barbara become the Ur companions and, and the uh, harbingers of, of, of so much more. I love that idea for them because there is a kind of a myth around them already in our memories. And anytime you can take that and twist it and enhance it is, is absolutely great and answer some questions that you didn't know you wanted answering about Doctor Who history. Speaking of Doctor Who history and myth and enhancing it, this is Sensorites. One good thing that comes out of it. It's the first story to describe Gallifrey, right? That's true. Yes. Even though it wasn't called Gallifrey. Mm hmm. It's the first time we hear of the Doctor and Susan's home planet, where the skies are burnt orange and the trees are silver. Yeah, bright silver, silver leaves. Yep. Silver yeah. leaves. Which and is then quoted uh, later on by, by the 11th Doctor, is that correct? I think it's Tenet, and I had to Tenet. look this up. This is the one thing yeah. I, I, I had time to, because I was intrigued, because I remember, uh, I actually didn't remember this, because um, mm-hmm. I never saw it, because <laughs> I would fall yeah. asleep, because it's like in episode <laughs> five or something like that. Um, it's late, yeah. But uh, it's it's in gridlock, according to mm. what I was reading. I did get a chance to review that, but apparently this is toward. If you remember gridlock, it uh, yep. Martha sort of pulls pulls a little more 
information really uh, from the doctor. Like it's like pulling teeth and finally gets him to open up a bit by the end of the episode about where he's from and who he is. And uh, apparently that's where he describes the silver leaves again, um, mm. which is always interesting. Like with, when they describe Gallifrey, it's, you know, it, we, we've seen the Citadel and that's, I think for a long time, that's mostly what we associated with Gallifrey, like the indoors yeah. of the, um, of the time Lords. But then you hear, stuff about the silver leaves. The third doctor would talk about his, the mountain he grew up next to um, or close to. And there's the farmhouse. So you kind of get this impression. The doctor's family were sort of outdoorsy people on Gallifrey, yeah. which is a little weird. Um, Super rural. Yeah. And uh, I remember there was even, even the McGann doctor, because I actually, for some reason, I thought this dialogue was from the movie because he does do that bit where he's talking to Grace Holloway and he's just newly regenerated. And he's like, I remember my father, you know, we it's a warm Gallifreyan night. And he's talking about a meteor shower that he was in awe of. Um, yeah, these kind of neat little moments. Uh, mm. But they are they are kind of random, though, right? Like they just kind of pick like what's what's kind of normal and a bit sci fi. All right. So there's like. <laughs> Trees, but the, the the leaves are silver. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, yeah. But burnt orange sky. Like when when Susan said that, it was it just sort of reminded me of the day last year when San Francisco turned orange. Oh uh, my. Because of the forest fires, yeah. that was that was not a pleasant memory. But it is true that they that they kept that like that. We don't actually see an outdoor shot of Gallifrey until the new series. Is that right? Um, out. No, no. We saw outdoor shots of Gallery in the Invasion of Time. So okay, okay, yeah. In the invasion of time, actually, Leela is, is thrown is the out sky, of the city. The sky is burnt orange. Uh, <laughs> I think it's whatever overcast sky uh, <laughs> of the, above the quarry where they filmed it. Uh, oh, yeah, right. I don't think I don't think they had a great, lot of great lens filtering technology. Uh, but there <laughs> and was of course, a lot it's in the Five Doctors as well. We see we see the the death zone or whatever it is on Gallifrey. Right, that was like yeah, very. A very where, where did they film that some somewhere in wales but it was uh it was some craggy quarry. it was pretty craggy uh but for no, much of its history doctor who was itself a random journey through random quarries in britain yeah no orange sky in five doctors either although you could i maybe maybe similarly like the orange sky was because of some conditions not necessarily that the natural mm. state, but actually, come to think of it, there was the orange sky though, because they did do it when they did the flashbacks, right? In, mm -hmm. I think it was the Sound of Drums. Yep. Where they they show the Citadel, the Time Lords, and the sky is orange there. Yes. Yes. Okay. Certainly so they who it's been it. consistently orange, uh, but it's, it's nice that uh, you know Doctor Who people are nerds enough to go back that far. Uh, and maybe it took until the new series until we were a that nerdy and b had the visual effects to <laughs> produce Gallifrey as it was supposed to be. It's always meant to be uh, orange, guys. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure they did that because of the conventions, because they knew some fan would stand up and say, "Uh, actually, in the Sensorites, in episode five of the Sensorites, Susan describes the Gallifrey sky as burnt orange. We'd never actually seen that." Mm -hmm. um, yes. Uh, at a certain point, those people grow up, and they actually make Doctor Who, um, you know, in in the way that the thing I will always appreciate about Capaldi writes. He's such a Who nerd. He he was very much in the Whovian community, and that's true of a lot of them. Certainly true of people like Moffat. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, I love I love the idea of accidentally building a uh, a wider meta story over the years with this first contribution all the way back in 1964. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all, even though we've kind of learned more and more about Gallifreyan society, I, I don't think we've ever like seen the people so much, right? Yeah. Like wherever the doctor um, lived, like this, I don't know, this rural area. I mean, there's like the Shabogans right. they showed in Invasion of Time, but that was sort of this weird rebel group that was sort of out, lived outside the Citadel. And the implication was like all the Time Lords lived in the Citadel. Um, so what, where's the Doctor's house? Like, I mean, it, it's very, hmm. very interesting. There, there's clearly more to Gallifreyan society than just here's the Time Lords and here's like the, the weirdos that live outside the Citadel. Uh, maybe someday they'll uh, yeah. get clearer on that, but who knows? So Bill Hartnell has a couple of other lines. Uh, I've just got one here that I wrote down. He says, the calmer you are, the stronger. thought that was good advice. Mm. And there's another mm -hmm. line that isn't... He should take his own advice there. Right. <laughs> You're right. Uh, and there's another line that I thought... It's not his line, but I thought it was very... It was a good Doctor Who line. And I don't think they necessarily meant it this way, but someone warns the Doctor about the sewers, I believe, and says... There are monsters in there. And I thought, is there any other thing you could say to make the doctor want to go in there? <laughs> like, more than that line, right? <laughs> like, Yeah, the doctor needs to be more honest about it. He's just, he's just a monster collector. Yeah. He's, like, he's the, the equivalent of a birder in the, in the monster world. He just got to note them all down in his book. There's, there's a great line in the new Battlestar Galactica uh, where the Cylons have invaded the ship. And mm -hmm. the uh, whoever the guy playing the, uh, Apollo in the new series goes is trying to warn the president uh, and everyone to get away from the area and like okay, go this section go through this way, but whatever you do, move away from the gunfire. And she goes okay. <laughs> then wait, what are you going to do? We're going toward the gunfire. <laughs> and it's like I thought that you know that that sort of those kind of lines where it's like I'm the hero. I run into danger. Yeah. You know, like that, that's very much, uh, I'm a kind of a sucker for those lines. And I thought, even though this wasn't quite that line, I think, and that's probably more my read than anything else. I think this is, uh, one of those sort of doctor who moments where, Oh, there's monsters in there. Well, there's, there's yeah. the doctors and, here. We're going to deal with that. And it's like, he's not even running in because he's a hero. Cause the Hartnell doctor is barely a hero. It's just that he's fascinated by monsters. Hmm. He's an explorer. He wants to. He wants to probe exactly what's going on, uh, and uh, but just to go back to the Doctor's name dropping. Mm -hmm. uh, there's one other major historical figure is mentioned when the Doctor gets his snazzy cape. Uh, oh yes, it's probably the the nicest thing that the censorites do is they give him a cape, and he mentions he just drops into the conversation that Bo Brummel said he looked good in the cape. Do you, have you ever heard of Bo Brummel? <laughs> I have is not heard of Bo Brummel. That, yeah, great name though. Very. It is a great name. It's kind of a deep cut of uh, British Regency history. He's sort of seen as the, the ultimate dandy, uh, a friend of uh, the Prince Regent, King Edward, later King Edward IV. Okay. Um, and one, one of his pals, but they quarreled and he got into debt and he had to run away to France. And it's, it's this sort of whole British history thing. And this, you know, maybe this is a line that they throw it. This is their historical education for the week, kids. <laughs> Go look up Bo Brummel in your local libraries. Um, but yeah, he's a famous dandy who is all about fashion. Well, and, and if I were a dandy, himself I would certainly flee to death. France first chance I got. 
<laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, cool. you know. But maybe he should have he should have showed up in uh, in Reign of Terror after the Doctor dated him. Like that would have been a great uh, Chekhov's gun mm. kind of payoff there. Yeah, or uh, City or City of Death. Was. One of those. Yes. Yeah. A little I later, mean, he, but you he know. was there. Yeah, a little later, but he was there in uh, in French Revolutionary times. So. Uh, well, you um, know, it's Doctor Who, right? <laughs> yeah. Sort of step through some kind of <laughs> exactly time time gate. Bring uh, anyone anywhere to any era that you need to. We need we need more dandies um, in the twentieth century. Anyway, uh, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the evil plot. <laughs> we had a big dandy yeah, we, shortage in the seventies, and we big bro Bremel back to, uh, to to dandy it up here in France. The, the whole thing uh, is arranged by Bo Bremel to sell cloaks um, to get himself out of debt. Uh, well, we we should. You've you've mentioned it, and we should do our regular feature on what what happened, what would have happened if the evil plot su- succeeded, which is uh, a, a tricky question. Yeah. This, so, what exactly I, is the evil plot in the censorites? Well, that's a good. Yeah, I guess you have to go with the city administrator never getting found out. Yeah. And so, what happens then? I mean, I guess mm. the John is still crazy. The every oh the he, he, the disintegrator gun, that because yeah. every um every city capital has a disintegrator room, <laughs> just underneath it, and able to like train those weapons on anyone sitting in rooms within that capital. Uh, for whatever reason, that's how the censorites designed this. So yeah, I, they would have been disintegrated like in episode three or four, right? That, you know that that's an excellent point. I I kept accept, uh, expecting the disintegrator room to become part of a cliffhanger, mm. because because they bring it up. The disintegrator room is the Chekhov's gun of the Zensorites. Um Correct me if and... I'm wrong, but do we ever see anyone get disintegrated? We don't. Because oh, the man. disintegrator key is bent. Uh, yeah. So get, uh, it would have been a very cheap effect for because so, I I understand that it's just like. It targets their organs. That's why that's all they talk about. Do the, do humans have their heart in the center of their chests as we do? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is it's just like and they're just like shrug. I don't know. Uh-huh. Well, let's just <laughs> let's shoot have... them three times just to be sure. Um, <laughs> do they have them on the left? Do they have them on the right? I feel like that was another educational line that was thrown in. Yeah. So kids would then ask their parents about where exactly in our chest cavity why, why are our hearts? Why couldn't they be up or down? Hmm? Not just left or right. I there's, was, there's, I was there's almost four dimensions. Well, anyway, <laughs> I was almost holding my breath at that moment to see if we would have a uh, continuity error uh, where the doctor was targeted, uh, and we hadn't yet learned that he has two hearts. Right? Yeah, uh, that would have been I mean, fun. If well, then let's take like it through. Right? Let's take it through. That. What if that evil plot okay. had succeeded and they decided, okay, they don't know where the hearts are, so they go to the center. <laughs> And presumably that hurts, even though our, our hearts it, are in the center is the thing, right? Like, it's kind of a bit of a the, myth that, like, people think the heart's, like, way over here, like, in like under your, you left. know, like, the yeah. nipple or the whatever. Like, it's really mm-hmm. not. It's really mostly in the center and just a little bit to the left. It's, it's at a jaunty angle. Yeah, exactly. So they, they going with the center would probably get us pretty good. So you, you got to think Ian's dead. Susan's Gallifreyan, so she's got two hearts. So in the center, she probably gets a little bit of both. Maybe the mm. Susan and the Doctor are are hurt, but they're surprisingly 
not dead because they have the two hearts. So then yeah. what happens? Although they, they, they may have uh, regenerated. Like if you're, if you're taking a heart worth of hit, a hit to your True. central chest cavity, maybe that triggers a regeneration. So they regenerate, and then the sensorites are like, what's going on? Um, <laughs> so the, the, but then wouldn't the jig be up for the city administrator? Like he's very publicly just killed uh, one guy and tried to murder other, two others who are now metamorphosizing. So then what happens? Well, he's clearly a psychopath. He has no uh, compunction about killing fellow censorites because he killed the uh, the second in command right. dude. Um, so clearly, he has to up the ante and uh, kill, kill the the, the first elder. elder. And he looks all censorites look alike. So he he just yeah. grabs the sash. And exactly, is and like I'm 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 chief elder. Judge. Yeah. Um, so then, it, what it, what does it, he do with always... Doctor and Susan, the newly regenerated Doctor and Susan? Well, he thinks they're humans, and he hates humans, so I think that they, they'll probably either get disintegrated or thrown down the um, down the tunnels that lead to the reservoir. I think uh, he'll be fascinated about their change of appearance, mm. order them like to be imprisoned, yep. and probably destroy the rest of the humans and maybe the ship. Well, and... I tell you what, he, he is not giving that TARDIS key back. Yeah, so then this guy, he, basically, he becomes the, the Lord of Time. You know, he gets it out yes. of the Doctor. And, like, uh, he, he becomes, he's, maybe he becomes the Master. <laughs> I don't know. Well, he certainly uh, does what, what Mordrin and his ilk failed to do, which is, you know, take control of Time Lord technology. Yep, yep. Uh, and then he could just zip ship, around the though. universe. He would, she, he'd just killing have to, every... Yeah, he'd have to kill Barbara. Sorry, I was just thinking about loose plot holes we have there. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Ian and Barbara would be dead basically uh, once they figured out what side their hearts were on. Um, oh, I got it! I uh, got it. Because Susan's yeah. still alive, he tortures her to keep the Doctor in his thrall so that he can learn about the TARDIS and become like the Lord of Time. This is how this is going to work. Mm. So this is a really dark it. twist of of what happens uh, with the Sensorites, and maybe. Maybe this would maybe the doctor would eventually overpower him and turn the tables, but it would forever scar him, and we have a very much a much darker series after that. With... <laughs> yeah, we we have dark dark Patrick Troughton mm. um, trying to the salamander the deaths. <laughs> yeah, the salamander Patrick Troughton. Nice. Wow. Wow. Deep, deep cut. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> so the the sensorites has a lot of potential, as a, as I think the. Uh, the evil plot reveals if you follow it through to its logical conclusion. Yeah. Uh, it had potential to be quite evil. Uh, I love the idea of this, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin-esque figure uh, basically, you know, taking over, doing the equivalent of uh, poisoning people with polonium just with plausible deniability the whole time because you've got control of the disintegrator room. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah. It uh, hopefully there's some like big finish producer or, or comic book writer who can uh, take this and run with it. <laughs> Do the what if version. Just give him a better outfit. I don't know if it could take you know the sensorite guy with the with the jumpsuit running around the universe doing dark things uh, all that seriously. If I can see his his paunch hanging out uh, the whole time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and meanwhile, I, I don't know if you know about the uh, the third sensorite was a guy named Peter Glaze, Everyone's who Peter. Uh, was kind I of like a, a comedy figure. 
okay. in, in British culture. He, he, he was part of a show called Cracker Jack, um, which uh, there are there are if there are any British listeners to this podcast right now, when I said the word Cracker Jack, they will reply with Cracker Jack because that's what you do. It's a catchphrase. Um, okay, <laughs> a weird was, catchphrase, it, but I'll go with it. It's, yeah. Cracker Jack, Cracker Jack. It's, it's a very sort of pantomime kind of thing. Um, yeah, remember, kids, when you hear there. the word Cracker Jack, shout it back. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he was a comedian who appeared on that uh, for decades um, and had, you know, kind <laughs> of weird uh, catchphrases of his own. He plays a spoof brigadier in a sketch at some point. Like he's got weird connection to Doctor Who, and he's just randomly the third censorite. I mean, wow! Like, yeah, I mean, just like Chris Eggleston, <laughs> we all need money sometimes, right? <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you're the comedian. Sometimes you're the third censorite. You know, the third guy had some pretty good timing. I'll, I'll give it. I'll give him that. He's all. Is this the third guy who was? He had the the one sash. Or because the administrator had the oh no actually call. sorry I'm looking it up he Peter Glaze was the city administrator oh so he was the bad dude yeah this is what I forget because uh, because they you. don't have names it's super confusing yeah, he's well, just city like administrator Chris. but he's he's also noted in the credits as third censorite because he's not the legit second guy right we forget this he took the sash and he just took over and we think he's the second dude but no he was originally third censor right yeah i mean i gotta say the whole idea that they all look alike and even they can't tell themselves apart you, <laughs> you that that's a you'd think if like that was a thing that would be a very common problem among doctor who monsters and villains right like you kind of wonder so like did the daleks know which daleks are <laughs> if it's the same dalek they saw before like the, are there daleks constantly <laughs> mistaking other than, hello, Bill. No, I am Gwen. <laughs> oh, sorry. Where is Bill? I do not know, Bill. Leave me alone. Wow, who who invited Nicholas Briggs on the podcast? You didn't <laughs> tell me about a special guest, Pete. I, 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 I've <laughs> been practicing fantastic. for decades, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> your, your Dalek moment has arrived. What's especially weird about that scene, so this, this is where the you all look alike moment comes from is I believe Carol tells the city administrator that she couldn't tell because she saw him from behind and they look all look right. the same from behind. So she couldn't see the collar he was wearing. I mean, was that just written for a different costume design? Right. Cause if yeah. there's one thing you can see on all the sensor it's that their, their black sashes and collars are, are quite clear over there. Silver jumpsuits. Maybe the original mask hair. had like really long, like like gray hair. Like they just had manes yeah. that went like really yeah. far down. Like they were like 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 rock, like ancient rockers, you know. <laughs> like and, <laughs> and so they, they, they just ran colors. out of hair. Yeah, they ran like, out of hair and couldn't do this giant. You know, uh, they couldn't do the the mullet that yeah. they were looking for. All we can do are, are patchy beards, patchy gray beards. <laughs> And it's like, eh, I'll go with it. Do we have to change the script now? <laughs> <laughs> the the I, I will say one thing for the for the first elder, uh, even though his administration has blood on its hands with the, the death 
mm-hmm. of all these millions from from the plague. Uh, he he does have a great line, which is something like, "Sometimes a dogmatic answer is better than no answer." Okay, that was, was kind of kind of deep. Not sure what it what it means exactly, but it feels like it should mean more. <laughs> also, I'd say, and sometimes it's not. <laughs> like, maybe we should have said nothing at all. Um, and, and he's actually saying this because the city administrator is is too obsequious and is like, oh. He's asked his opinion. He's like, oh, I'm, it's not for me to gainsay the word of the great first elder. Like, total just... Yeah, know, it's a cop-out, man. Yeah. Totally. And, and then he becomes the guy who, uh, you know, who, who uh, perpetrates the evil plot. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating character for development there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great, Chris. Um, what do you think? Should we pass some final judgment here? Yeah. Okay. I, th- I think I can I can tell that, that an Ogron is coming from your direction. Uh, uh probably an army of Ogrons. Um but yes, yeah. it's a it's a big burly ugly Ogron. Um but honestly like uh, who I I could say has some good qualities and it had it had its moments this Ogron, you know? Like uh, all the all the sort of doctor whoish stuff that jumped out at me. It really contrasts to it was really good, and it re- it's really in contrast to the to the really bad story that is not thought out, really unimaginative mm. aliens, and just honestly empty. It just seems very empty of trying to make any kind of bigger point um, other than occasionally trying to educate its audience about a, a few things, whether it's you know cat eyesight or um, diseases or what have you. So yeah, so it's, it's a big it's a big thumbs down for me. Does does it strike you, by the way, that the uh, the writer Peter Newman kind of believed in ESP, as a lot of people did in the sixties, and tried to throw that line in there about the Doctor basically being telepathic? Yeah, the thing is, I, that's that's good, and that, again, that's more Doctor Who stuff we're getting out of here. This is sort of the first real like telepathy stuff we get. So, like, I mean, we have again, we have a lot to thank the censorites for in later years because mm. a lot of it was subsequently used and not forgotten about. Um, even though it's a little random that this story had a lot of that and they picked these specific things. But anyway, um, but I feel like with telepathy, he didn't even have much of a point about that. Like it's never really clear how it works. You don't really um, hear the sensor. I mean, sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. And most of the time you don't like, you know, hearing voices that are supposed that aren't being spoken. Um, it's even unclear if the sensor rights are vocalizing sometimes you know are they talking you know they're kind of moving um right so like they don't even have sort of a consistent view of of telepathy here and what it feels like and whether it's a a gross violation or not uh i i feel like you know you could have had a lot more to say just about that um yeah i think one episode of babylon 5 pick any episode of babylon 5 (laughs) it has more to say about telepathy than this entire serial (laughs) Uh, yeah, and Ian is sort of surprisingly incurious when the doctor said that he could basically read Ian's last thought. Right. Um, yeah. Ian and Barbara seem very uncurious about the fact that that uh, Susan is just sort of uh, is making this telepathic connection with the the sensorites. Like, yeah, there's there's a lot more. By the way, speaking of him, we 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 really ought to uh, bring up his wonderful play acting in in Sounding Sick, which I, I think one. <laughs> One one viewer of this yeah. described as like it's Ian does exactly what you do when you when you call in sick from for work, you just call 
Yeah. I can't come in today. I got a bit of a cough. Um, yeah, the Ian stuff. I, it was it was so bad. Honestly, I feel like um, William Russell. It, this is not William Russell's best performance. I feel like he he overacts in a few places. That's one of them. Um, and he's he's you know he's he's Ian, right? Like we like Ian. Mm. He's he's the, the the action hero of the whole serial, but he is. He's kind of not dark, but he's like kind of brutish here and there. And there's particularly early on where he's brandishing the hammer, and then he he mm. actually says at one point uh, he's he makes a big endorsement of violence <laughs> in, in one line. He's like, uh, "Why yep. can't we use violence? Aren't we, haven't we been attacked? Why don't we just punch him?" You know, like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, let's... yeah, exactly. Big old scary Cold War rhetoric from me in there. Yeah. Maybe we, we can, as as we view further Ian episodes in the future, we can see whether uh, Bad Ian is the one who wears the turtleneck. And, right. You know, right. Nice Ian is, is when he wears the tie. Yeah, Maybe exactly. This is what the juxtaposition of the, the rescue and the sensor rights are showing us. Well, he's definitely like showing them a kid's so, in this one. And I feel like he's also like very protective of Barbara in this episode. And, mm. um, which is, you know, like there's, there's, there's very like, you know, Ian and Barbara, the sexual tension is <laughs> storied and everywhere. Um, you and cut it with a knife. Well, and I like that, um, subsequent, virtually every subsequent, Fan or not fan, but like all every every um, off-screen adventure has essentially they they paired off afterward, right? Like I, I'm trying yep. to think, like who killed Kennedy? Did that? Hunters of the Burning Stone actually shows their wedding. Spoiler alert! Um, Whoa! Now I've got to read this. Yeah, there's there's uh, there's a ton of, I mean they're 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 totally bonded forever from this experience. And I always say it's 1963. It's a kids show. They're not gonna. You know, play it up like they did, um, you know, 30 or 40 years later. But it's a, um, uh, it's very much present in this episode. Like Ian's favorite move is to grab Barbara's shoulders yes. reassuringly and protectively and like, you know, signaling like this is, she's off limits, evil person. I'm here to protect her and sort of slash reassure her with this move. And it's it's you know and, and very traditional. He's also he's also very free with Susan's shoulder. Mm. Uh, we we might say, uh, especially during we haven't mentioned this the the, the part where uh, uh, Barbara's basically on holiday for two episodes. Uh, yeah. Ja- yeah, Jacqueline. I, why can I never remember her last name? Jacqueline Hill. Um, Jacqueline Jack- Hill. Yeah, thank Jackie. you. Jackie Hill basically goes on vacation for for two episodes. Of the Censorites. Did did uh, Jacqueline Hill go on yes. vacation for two episodes? Was she like, "I'm out of here"? That that is why there's the all of that stuff about oh, Barbara's still on the ship. Can we bring Barbara back down from the ship? You know, please, Mister First Elder, can we bring Barbara down from the ship? Which is just so looks so weird to us. Like mm. they've made such a plot point out of this. Oh, I don't think now is the right time to ask. Like they're really <laughs> covering for the fact that she's just not there. Jackie's and, flight's uh, delayed, guys. She's got to be out of the next one. <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> so that's super weird. Um, but so sixty. It's like we really have to write in why one of our lead actors is uh, is not here because we're shooting for all, as we know, all fifty-two weeks of the year. Right. Um, so. If, if they're not there, we need a reason why. 
Yeah. Uh, anyway, shall we shall we see where we're going next? Let's see where we're going next. Because we, we, we're done with this one. <laughs> we're very done. I think right, we have let's... exhausted the sense in the sensor rights. All right. We're about to engage the randomizer, Chris. So um, yep. we have to activate it. So let's get it in, uh, in standby mode. Are we ready? Yeah, firing it up. Okay. Uh, As everyone right. knows, so... the randomizer takes every story of Doctor Who, every distinct story, um, and puts them in order in uh, a straight line. So there are 297 episodes, and we are going to pick a number uh, uh, within that range. And uh, we're not going to pick it, though. Yep. Tell us what's Random. going to pick Random.org it. picks Random.org picks Random.org uses uh, atmospheric noise rather than an attempt to predict a random number via mathematical formula, um, which is not actually true randomness. That's right. Can't so be done, we could probably go... why the Daleks and the Mavellans never, never had a real resolution of that conflict. Right? No, wait. That was kind of different, but it doesn't matter. That's... Wow. That is a deep cut. Um, <laughs> We we are full of deep cuts here. There will be more. Uh, I'll never, all right. never stop all of time deep and space. Cuts. Okay, all of time and space, Pete. Where Everywhere do you want to go? Everywhere and next? anywhere. <laughs> I would say where do you want to go, but we know it's all random. But I'm just going to pretend to be uh, uh, upset by your uh, insinuation that we don't know where we're going, and I'm going to drop you off on the next, the That's next right. episode, whatever it is. Let's do this. All right, generating. 54. 54. Oh, my. I'm excited. It moves zeroing in, zeroing in. We did it already. It was Inferno. Oh, no. Wow. We got we fast fast luck. It's, it's, it's time locked. 54 is time locked. <laughs> we can't penetrate it. Look, randomize. I know you love the Brigadier. I know you love double Brigadier episodes, but just let's, let's go right. somewhere else, shall we? We got to spin That's again. the first time this has happened. It is. That's how, how exciting. I, by the way, we're, we're, we're almost at the phase where I think that we, you and I need to uh, draw up our, like, once we get to 20, maybe, our, our top 20 stories so far. Let's do and it. We'll, we'll compare them. We'll have a clip um, episode. I don't think, think we exactly. <laughs> End of season on Full to Open. Uh, all right. Let me hit generate again. Hello, Z. 173. Oh, my. We're getting into an era. This is good. This is good. We are at school reunion. Bam! <gasps> this is our wow. our first tenant episode, and Finally. our second Sarah Jane. Yes, yes, mm. and uh, second. That's Tina, very I think? exciting. Yeah, good yep, stuff. Yep, school yep. reunion. If we, wow! If we count the invisible enemy, yeah, that's uh, we're going back to New Who. First, first uh, randomizer visit to tenant at all. Um, but the randomizer likes likes to match up old who and new who. I think this is what's going on here. And school reunion is definitely an example of that. I think it's also the following modern undead. It's one of these episodes that caters to longtime fans in a very special way, mm. and gets a lot of its fun and drama from you know seeing this uh, old friend of the doctor's uh, encounter him anew. And reflect on their relationship then and now. So that'll be that'll be fun. 
Yeah, and deals with, with what happens after the Doctor dumps someone yes. in Aberdeen. Yes, and this is also like right... This is like tw- the beginning of season two of the new series, right when they knew they had a hit on their hands. And it was yep. starting to become a real franchise again, like um, a full-on phenomenon. Um, and I think we're going to see hints of that starting to starting to happen. Mm. Yeah, and <laughs> here we are nerding out about School Reunion before having even watched it. Yeah. But uh, tune in next time on Pull to Open to hear what we actually think about School Reunion and whether it holds up in this day and age. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Um, yeah, especially considering... Uh, well, well, we'll get into it then, where where <laughs> some of the people in that episode are now. Um, yeah, mm. yeah, we'll get there. Um, cool. Well, this has been great, Chris. Thanks for um, holding my hand as I uh, <laughs> went back to the censorites and uh, finally faced my fear. Uh, yeah, of, you you conquered the censorites. I did. You stayed away. You didn't. You didn't blink. <laughs> I might have and... blinked a little bit. I might have had like a little bit, okay, oh, what? Okay, yeah, stuff's happening. Silence Um, did not fall. But thanks thanks to you, I I now um, have it (laughs) in and out of my system. Excellent. Well, well, don't don't thank me. Thank the randomizer. The the randomizer really wanted you to conquer this fear, I think. Thank you, randomizer. Get through it. Get out of the other side. And also get us out the other side of the pandemic. Uh by locating the reservoir from which it began. Yes, indeed. Go ahead and take off your mask, randomizer. Um, <laughs> all right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Um, again, this has been Pull to Open, a Doctor Who podcast. And if you have not subscribed for whatever reason, maybe you're encountering us on a web embed. Maybe you're only just hearing about us from someone else's phone. Go find your phone. Go find your phone. Fire up your yeah. favorite podcast app. It could be Spotify. It could be Breaker. It could be Google Podcasts or our favorite the Apple Podcasts app and just hit that subscribe button. Tell your friends, share it out um, and go ahead and leave us a review if you get a chance. We like those reviews. The reviews are awesome. Um, And whatever you say, we would love to read it out on air. So uh, that's a bonus that will last only a while (laughs) until we get Mm. a critical mass of reviews. But yeah, please leave a review. They really do help. Follow us on social. We're at Pull to Open on TikTok. We're doing a lot of stuff there. Pull to Open 63 on Twitter and Instagram. And, uh, you know, right outside your window sometimes, too. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We like to appear outside your window. And also, this entire episode is being broadcast telepathic telepathically to uh, to the entire universe so let us know if you picked it up that way if you did pick it up that way please subscribe indeed and, uh, please attend leave our telepathy a review <laughs> <laughs> think back a review at us oh i love it think back guys and all we'll right pete think at we'll you next, next time, time.